The grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for today is taken from our gospel reading from the 11th chapter of St. John with an emphasis on these words. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This is our text, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Joseph Michael Valachi lived a life straight out of an old gangster noir film. Starting his criminal career as a smash-and-grab burglar, Valachi was drafted and inducted into New York's infamous Reina crime family as a soldato or soldier. From there, he worked his way up to the station of underboss. He did so by carrying out a number of assassinations on behalf of the notorious boss of bosses himself, Vito Genovese. But all of this would change in 1959, when Valachi was arrested for his alleged role in New York City's drug traffic. These all included charges like trafficking, extortion, and murder. The case against him was sound, and while awaiting trial, Valachi struck a plea bargain to have his impending sentence commuted from the death penalty to life imprisonment. In exchange for this bargain, Valachi gave one of the most astounding testimonies in the entire history of American justice, informing not just on members of the Reina and Genovese crime families, but also on the entire structure and organization of the American Mafia, to which he famously attached the name which some of you might know, La Cosa Nostra, or Our Thing. The reason for his sudden about-face Well, it was not a moral epiphany, nor a sudden pangs of guilt about his crimes. Rather, as luck would have it, Vito Genovese, his boss, was arrested shortly after Valachi was incarcerated. And with half of his operation suddenly thrown into prison, Genovese came to the conclusion that it must have been Valachi who informed to the police about their operation. Now, whether or not this is true is still unknown to this day, but Valachi began to talk. Being a marked man for his uh, sudden incarceration and with the operation of his boss in prison with him, he began to get desperate and sought a way out. This led to his aforementioned testimony. Weighing his options, he decided that he would rather live in prison than take his chances on the outside as a dead man walking. The irony, of course, was that he was really doing no more than trading one death sentence for another. Sure, he could keep his silence, he could persist in his criminal career, and he could be put on death row by the state. Or he could inform to the police, break ties with the mob, and then be marked for death by them. Fortunately, he chose the latter, 
inadvertently saving many lives by helping law enforcement to mobilize against the crime syndicates of New York City. Now, friends, though our crimes may not be the same as his, like Joseph Valachi, each of us carries a death sentence because of our sins. If we are not murderers, then we are slanderers. If we are not slanderers, then we are thieves. If not thieves, then adulterers or idolaters. We might think of ourselves as different from those inmates who are on death row, but the scriptures make no distinction. Sin is sin. And as St. Paul famously wrote in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. When we reflect on these words, those of us who are faithful churchgoers might be just a little bit uncomfortable. You mean to tell me, pastor, that the good people of this world, the civil servants, the philanthropists, the relief workers, the Sunday school teachers, these are all as guilty as those button men and narcotics peddlers in prison? Well, concerning righteousness before God, yes. None of us, by virtue of our actions, our good deeds, are exempt. For we confess, again, in Paul's words to the Romans, that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Nowhere is this simple fact more pronounced than at the funeral of one of the good people. This brings us to our text for today. For as prominent of a figure as he is in the Christian confessions, there's a whole lot that we don't actually know about Lazarus. We know that he was the brother of Martha and Mary. We know that he was a personal friend of Jesus. And there are also a couple of details that we may be able to infer about him from context clues. It's possible that he was the sole provider for his sisters, given that there's never any mention of their parents or spouses in the scriptures. As well as the fact they all seem to have lived together, as we saw in the text where Jesus comes to their home for dinner. Lazarus may also, likely, have been a prominent and faithful member of his local synagogue. We can assume this because we see a great many from as far as Jerusalem, coming down to Bethany in order to pay their respects to their fallen friend and to console his grieving sisters. By all accounts, you or I would probably look at Lazarus or a man like him and think, this guy, this guy is one of the good ones. But none of these great things about Lazarus could undo the curse of sin. None of these could change its inevitable consequence. For Lazarus still fell ill, and he died. The wages of sin sending shockwaves through his community and through his family. And now, where our text picks up, four days after his burial, we see Jesus arrive at Bethany to inquire after Martha and Mary. Martha is the first to come out and to receive him, approaching Jesus with a curious mixture of respect and a little bit of chastisement. For she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She acknowledges Jesus as her Lord. She recognizes his authority to work miracles, but in the face of death, 
she must have assumed that even the authority of a great teacher and healer like Jesus must be at its limit. Though, yes, he raised others, Lazarus, we hear, was, always, was already buried long enough for his body to begin to decompose. The finality of his death, it seemed, was incontestable. In the face of this finality, Jesus first speaks words of a future hope to Martha, which many Jews clung to. He said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, Martha, being a devout Jew, has certainly heard these words before. She hears Jesus' statement, and indeed, she's comforted by these words. She says, yes, Lord, I know, I confess, I believe that he will rise again on the last day. But what Martha dares not say in this passage are those words which so many of us feel when someone that we dearly love dies. My pain is still real. Death's sting is still pronounced. Yes, Lord, that last day will certainly be glorious, but this day, this day is miserable. And knowing this, Jesus turns the conversation not just to a future hope, but to something more. He gives to Martha and to all people to whom death draws near some of the most beautiful words of consolation in the entirety of the Holy Scriptures. Words which we still use to this day in each of our funeral services here in the church. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. See, when Jesus says this, he's making it known plainly that wherever he is, there is life also. So when he promises a resurrection from the dead, he's not talking simply about some far-off day in the future still to come, when the fullness of his promises will at long last be revealed. When Jesus promises a resurrection from the dead, he is talking about real, present grace. Eternal life does not begin when we get to heaven. Nor, for that matter, does it begin on that great and glorious day when our bodies will be called out of their earthly tombs. No, the life of the Christian is inextinguishable from the very moment that it comes in contact with Christ, the resurrection and the life. Now, to show this in concrete terms, Jesus next moves from the sister's house to his friend's burial site. And once there, he commands the stone blocking the tomb to be rolled away. And there, with an imperious cry, he calls for the dead man to come out of his tomb and walk. And because this Christ has authority even over death, Lazarus rises, the dead man walks, and he comes out of the tomb to his friends and family still bound in his burial cloths. But Lazarus is no longer bound. Therefore, Jesus orders that the garments of the dead be removed from his friend, who now in him lives again. This is the part of the story that we latch on to. These are the words that we remember 
and celebrate each time we hold a memorial or funeral service, that in Christ the dead are made alive. But you probably notice that there's still more to this text. The part that we don't always latch on to might have shocked you just a little bit if you were paying close attention this morning, if you have not considered these words before. Because while many believed in Jesus when they saw this miracle, there were Pharisees among them who witnessed what had happened and then scurried off to the Sanhedrin in order to conspire together about how they might murder Jesus. It's here in the text that we see a great exchange take place. The resurrection of Lazarus meant that Jesus was now a dead man walking. Lazarus' life would mean Jesus' death. But not Lazarus only, for as Caiaphas so unwittingly prophesied, it is better that one man should die for all the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Jesus walked the way that leads to death in order that you and I might be given new life in him. The Joe Valachis and the Lazaruses of the world alike are all paid for by the merit and death of our Lord and Savior. Perhaps more than anyone, it was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who best understood what her brother's resurrection would mean for Jesus. From the very next chapter, which we didn't read today, Mary anoints Jesus for his own forthcoming burial in a show of love and gratitude. After this, we know what happens. Jesus entered into the holy city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to do for all of us what he first did for Lazarus, to offer up his life in exchange for ours. So we see the life of the one righteous man handed over for the lives of countless unrighteous men and women. There is, however, one more lesson to be learned from this story of Lazarus, one which often gets glossed over given the glory revealed in the miracle of his resurrection. For you see, in that very same chapter where Jesus is anointed and then heads into Jerusalem, there is a text which bridges these two events where we see again the Pharisees, the scribes, and the teachers of the law all coming together to conspire, not just after Jesus' life, but also that of Lazarus. For with the public nature of the miracle, as well as the certain witness that followed from Lazarus himself, the Sanhedrin decided that he too must be put to death in order to keep the Jews from following the Messiah. In a twist far more shocking than any underworld conspiracy, It seems that the cost of Lazarus' resurrection from the dead would be that he too was now marked for death. The life that he enjoyed in Christ Jesus meant that he was now at odds with the powers of this world. Like his Savior, Lazarus was once again a dead man walking. Yet the death that Lazarus would eventually die would not be like the first. Having already died to sin, Lazarus went to his grave a second time in the knowledge of Christ crucified for the forgiveness of his sins. He heard with his own ears 
the promises which Jesus made about a still greater resurrection than the one which he himself experienced. For that life which he would deliver to all those who love him would never again be snuffed out by death. And dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I tell you that it is this life which you and I now live. Baptized into Christ, we have died to our sins, and we now live in light of his sacrifice for us. Dead to this world of sin, our confidence is now the same as Lazarus and Martha and Mary and all those who witnessed our Lord's own resurrection. The confidence that death is defeated, that you and I need not wait until the last day to enjoy eternal life. For Christ Jesus is present now. He is present here among us with his grace in the word and in the sacraments. He is present to pronounce his forgiveness of sins for you once more. And where the Christ is present, there also is life. For this reason, St. Paul writes in his letter to the church in Philippi, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Therefore, dear Christians, in life and in death, cling to him who has laid down his life so that you might be raised again. In Jesus' name, amen. May the peace of God, which far surpasses all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in this same Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.